Welcome back to Singular XQ. I am very honored today that I am handing over the host duties to one of our favorite new advisors, Archana Shaw. Archana is going to be running this episode and she's actually going to interview me for a change. Hi, Archana. Welcome on and welcome to being a host. Hey, thank you. Uh, this is you are the first non-JP host. Yes. And I, and we I, are having some other guest hosts this season, So, but you are our first. I'm honored. And I do not take this lightly. So, but I am going to be asking you some barely what I think will be hard-hitting questions, uh, because we definitely, I think, all of us who've been listening to the podcast might like to get a deeper view into the person behind the podcast and the team behind the podcast. So, whenever you're ready, we can dive right in. And I have some fairly basic opening questions for you. So, we'll start with Singular XQ. How did that start? What inspired that? Well, Singular XQ was really at first just a solopreneur uh, consultancy where I sometimes use subcontractors. And about a year and a half ago, um, maybe not quite two years now, business really picked up and I was starting to get more work than I could take. And I started subcontracting out to a larger and larger group of people in order to not turn work away. And so we talked about scaling because a lot of us really enjoyed working together, but we were sort of existing from contract to contract waiting for another chance. So what would happen if we tried to scale? And as we set those those wheels in motion, having a nonprofit was always part of the equation. We wanted to have like a foundation because we feel really strongly that, that training um, and giving back uh, internationally to people ages 18 to 35, and even people who are older who are doing career transition was really where we wanted to give back the most. So we had always had the idea for a foundation attached to the company. But as we started talking about our clients and who we were serving and how we were serving them, there were a lot of a lot of problems that we all had shared in common. We were we shared a kind of mutual misery that we discovered in in the workplaces we were serving, mostly because we would be getting called in when there was either something new being started up or something that was undergoing a digital transformation, a legacy organization going through a digital transformation. And there was a lot of there was a lot of hardship and a lot of misery. And it was very hard to even get our clients to hear us because of the pressures and the internal politics of what they were sustaining through all of these large, highly funded, but somewhat ambiguous digital transformation efforts that we were seeing. So we thought, how can we really, really help these people really impact because the game is being played by an old set of rules and those rules don't apply anymore. And we can see this very clearly that it's failing, it's causing pain, it's causing suffering, it's causing waste. And so we wanted to really get down in under and help change the game so that these transformations had a much bigger chance of being impactful and not, and not failing. So that's when we started to realize we were a nonprofit. Um, and that's how Singular XQ was born. Yeah, okay, a noble pursuit and a noble idea. Um, yes. But speaking about the mutual misery and digital transformation is a big thing in the industry. There's people at varying levels of maturity of it, regardless of what size of company you are. But if you don't mind, we can dig a little bit deeper in, into that. Um, I'd love to hear one personal story from you on one example of a digital transformation that went really well. Uh, well, I was working for the Department of Health and Human Services in the government, and it wasn't really a digital transformation. It was one particular, but it was a project that's typically part of a digital transformation, which is 
here we have this old data portal that needs to be updated. And it looks like it was designed in GeoCities, like we need to update it and get it uh, to be more contemporary. And it, I think there's a reason that this was one of my favorite projects. And, and it was in the Department of Health and Human Services to help families get, get their needs and assistance funds quicker and easier. Um, and I think that's the reason why it went well, because when you're in a more revenue driven enterprise, um, it's harder to feel a sense of connection and to feel good about what you're doing. Yep. Right. Yeah. So in this particular project, it started off like most other projects that I'd been on. There was a lot, great deal of chaos and an ineffective use of time to start because that's what happens when you bring new people together. But over time, we, we developed cadences, we developed good relationships, and we developed an environment of co-ownership of the product amongst all the product leads and the engineers serving on the team. And that really made all the difference. And TDRS uh, has been delivered and is doing quite well. And I'm still in touch with multiple members from that team. And, um, and so that was an example of a digital transformation that took a lot of effort, um, but but that eventually came to this happy place, which I see as the ideal software development experience, which is an adventure that people of skill and knowledge are traveling on together. And I think that, and, and, and that you all co-own the experience, you co-own the software, and you're all responsible for raising risks and solving all problems, no matter what swim lane you're in, because you're a tight little two pizza team like what Je Jeff Be Bezos called the two pizza team. Yeah. I'd heard about that idea, yeah. but, but it, and I've only experienced it three times in my life. Um, and the rest of the time we're working in organizations that are struggling between older models of hierarchy and this idea that the two pizza team can save the world. And they don't come to a happy compromise there. Scary and painful. So if you had to whittle it down though, the factors that drive successful digital transformation, it sounded like connection to the cause or to the people whom you're eventually hoping to serve as one. What would you name the others as? Well, it's something I call XQ, which is where the name comes from, Singular XQ. And I have a book coming out in a few months, um, probably the first uh, quarter of January, uh, that defines what XQ is. And I just find XQ is a new form of intelligence, business intelligence. It's a transformational intelligence. You've heard of EQ, which is emotional intelligence. Quoting. XQ is transformation intelligence. And I've come up with 10 things that uh, make somebody a person with high XQ. And it makes them and the teams they serve on much more likely to succeed. And um, they'll all be itemized in the book, and I won't go down the whole list. But if I had to summarize what those 10 uh, qualities are, yeah. it's curiosity and compassion. Mm -hmm. And that's where our motto at Singular XQ comes from. Curious people who care change yeah. the world, right? Because yeah. I really believe that. And I really believe that that's what we're all doing, whether we're for-profit or non-profit. We're literally changing the world now we're working almost underground like with a blacksmith underground to wield a new future together right. and it sometimes doesn't feel like it's that epic or that important because we're dealing with very small legacy products or this is so irrelevant but 
but the things that we're discovering and what we're learning how to do is actively changing the world at a rate that no other human generation has ever seen. That's pretty exciting. And that's a kind of overwhelming responsibility. Because if you think about what we're creating here now is going to be what we pass down to the people coming behind us and what they're going to have to work with. Um, and that could be a nightmare or that could be a much better world, depending on how we put our minds to what we're doing right now. And people with high XQ, uh, some of them aren't going to be, some of the ideas in XQ aren't going to be new to people. But when you put them all together, it's a new way of doing business. Mm. It's decentralized. It's, uh, it's trusting. Uh, it's learning how to lo- leverage knowledge capital. Mm. Okay. So knowledge capital is more valuable than it ever has been in human history. Um, Although I would argue that there are moments in human history that have been like this, like the Renaissance. But knowledge capital is what all businesses need right now and are struggling how to leverage. And you'll see this all over the news. One person at Meta called it Talent Pokemon. And uh, there was another business insider just yesterday about this phenomenon of uh, collecting talent and putting them in place, but then not knowing what to do with them. So like, we know we need a data science team. We know we need PhDs with social science qualifications that can analyze human behavior inside complex systems. We know we know those people, Mm -hmm. but we're going to put them in here and we're going to create fake work for them. And we're not going to actually unleash them because we don't know what to do with them yet. We just know that we need them. The post pandemic uh, recruiting bubble and that, that was quite the spectacle to watch. It is. And it still is. It's still like the layers of that are still and the uh, outcome of that is still being felt because you're I'm also noticing a lot of people going back. The same people that laid off are now rehiring. They're trying to rehire at lower levels. But the analysis is not correct. The analysis is we've hired these people and they haven't had an impact. To me, the analysis is about what is management doing with that talent when they get there? Because you can't tell me. You have all that intelligence and capability in the room, room, and you couldn't find a way to leverage that inside your organization to your advantage. The reason is, is when you leverage knowledge capital, it is destabilizing and disrupting. And it, and it attacks decision-making power in multiple ways, which makes people who hold that decision-making power yeah. very nervous. Mm. Right? Yes. It, so now... Learning how to be a leader of people in possession and knowledge capital is quite a different game. And, and th- that's, that's what we realize that we really have to get, get into here at Singular XQ if we want to succeed the way we want to succeed. Otherwise, we get pulled into these failed digital transformation and become accomplice to it as consultants. We don't help it. We're, we're forced to be accomplice to it. Can you help me understand and for everyone who's listening in, when you say knowledge capital, what do you mean by that? Um, Or just tell me a little bit more by that. So right now, I believe that the knowledge capital resides in engineering as always. It resides in data literacy and it resides in uh, social cultural uh, domains like humanities and social sciences. Those are the three areas that are really desperately needed right now. Okay. And it's uh, and it's those three together 
that are going to create massive change over the next couple of decades, but it has to be for the leaders who are strong enough to be able to withstand what that means. What happens when you have people in possession of knowledge capital working autonomously on tight teams, you know, and, and you can't control the outcome, right? What's going to change is going to change. That's, that's really, really going to be the interesting part of the next few decades, I think. Because while uh, technology changes quickly, humans change slowly. True, true. So then let me ask you this. This is my first would you rather question. So would you rather be on a beach or would you rather be leading a slower, moving in the right direction kind of enterprise? A two pizza team or the... uh, Yeah. uh, Well, those two things like... Two pizza teams can move slowly too. Like I'm a big fan of saying you have to slow down to speed up. Yeah. And one of the biggest things that we have, the most pernicious things, well, the number one most pernicious thing is unearned privilege. Mm. But we can return to that oh, in a minute. Yeah, the second most pernicious thing is that people believe that speed and revenue are intricately twined, entwined together. Mm. And it's very hard for people to understand long tail effects. Mm. So the long tail is where humanity-centered design really, really went. For example, we it's, and it's now becoming a matter of legality, which I really appreciate. But up until this point, we've had the ability to use dark UX patterns, black hat UX patterns, right? And those UX, uh, those dark UX patterns are very deceptive. They um, they capitalize on anxiety and post-traumatic stress to make sales quickly. The famous example is the clock ticking um, when you buy your ticket and, you know, do you want to add this VIP parking pass? And if you read the fine print, there's already parking included in your ticket, but you don't have time because you're so anxious. You just want that clock to go away. So you click it. But what we've learned about those patterns is they work. They increase conversions significantly, but they don't create customer lifetime value. Because the person who's anxious and has PTSD will have a negative association with visiting your site and will be less likely to return to it, even if they want those concert tickets. They have an unconscious dissuasion from using your um, from using your uh, website. So, and I bring that up because we believe uh, that the short-term conversion is is the most important thing, but in fact, we know it isn't. And if you go for the short-term conversion. If you go for the low hanging fruit, you're going to become very fragile as an organization. And we're seeing a little bit of that. I can't make a prediction of the future, but we can see how destabilized Google has become from losing search, right? And when search was destabilized. So if you're going for that easy conversion, but aren't doing long term planning, um, and I'm not saying Google didn't, I'm just saying, you know, it's very easy for even somebody as large as Google to be destabilized, but you have to be doing long-term planning and long-term visioning. And that takes time and effort and it accumulates over a period. It's durational. It's not like, Hey, here's this two week research period. And now it's over. Mm. It's durational. It has to be constant and, and we have to return to it over time so that even the research itself, like the design is iterative. So that that's, uh, that's where, where we're moving into next. Now that we are watching the speed to market thing evaporate. And I can give you multiple historic examples that show you that first to market is not an advantage. First to market is a disadvantage. The the Spotify Pandora story. I invite people just to, to, to search it up. And and as my kids say, search it up and, and read about that because Spotify is 
who it is because Pandora was first to market. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And they learn from Pandora's mistakes. Wow. It's called the Pandora effect, actually. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, that name took on a very, very historic meaning uh, for the wrong reasons. So, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so then switching gears to the other side of that same coin, uh, you have a horror story that you can share with us for digital transformation that you had to live through. Well, you know, I have NDAs, right? I have, suffice to say, I have so many. Oh, no. But what I I can say, and I'm going to change some details uh, so that it's not instantly identifiable, but there was one company that I worked for that was very cutting edge. They had been valued at 2.5 billion in its first round of funding. Wow. So it's a perfect example of these kind of helium valuations yeah. that have been going around lately that have been trending in the past 10 years. Mm. And the, I think they have a damaging effect mm. uh, because it's not real. Um, it's inflated yep. and it gives people, it makes, when, as you and I have spoken about, you know, the research that I've been doing, and this will all be in my book as well, but that when people hear about money, it doesn't even have to be connected to them directly, just as a general topic, they're more likely to behave badly. They're more likely to be dishonest. They're more li- most likely to exhibit self-interested and narcissistic behavior. So when you go into a company and everybody's talking about 2.5 billion and they're talking about, uh, they're talking about their, their stock options values and all of this sort of thing, it creates some bad behavior. Uh, it's it's the inevitable outcome of such a thing. So a startup leader has to be conscious of that and, and decide in advance, what are you going to proactively do to mitigate some of that self-interested, I call it Lord of the Flies behavior yeah. inside the company. And if they don't plan for it, it will get the better of them. And I saw this inside this company and basically they, there was a kind of uh, lack of process inside and a lack of governance and a lack of data hygiene that I found very disturbing because it went against most of the practices that I'd seen. So I was an advisor to the C-suite and I escalated uh, the pattern and I told the leader that the chance of a high stakes public failure with the kinds of behavior I was seeing was about 100%. Because what was happening was is people weren't working as a team. People were working on the code repository late at night without recording what they were doing, without there being a change log, without anything. There was no there was no uh, agile DevOps process that I could identify. You know, there was nothing happening, and there was no way to escalate risks effectively, which led to a culture of not re- escalating any risks and just looking the other way. Uh, but then there was a massive data breach a couple weeks later. And it involved it involved some some people's reputations because some things were sent out um, in the data breach that, that and it, so you know and I did not feel Schadenfreude or you know I told you so I might have felt I told you so just a little bit but you when you've been around working as long as I have in these in these different kinds of scrums of all different kinds of people like techie people who are, you know, in this field, that field, this industry, that industry, this language, that language, this, you know, this uh, perception of Agile DevOps, that perception of Agile DevOps, you know, you see all these things, you you start to see the anti-patterns pretty clearly Mm. when something is happening that is going to lead to disastrous outcome. 
Um, and so it, it's kind of hard. And this is what I mean by knowledge capital. If those people are calling the shots, the people who have that experience. And in this case, those people were there inside the company watching the train wreck in slow motion, but because of politics couldn't get underneath it or behind it and, and root it out. It just, they just had to watch it play out because the people with the experience and knowledge in those areas weren't being empowered. Um, and so that, that was basically what happened. Um, so, um, I, I don't know what's happened since, uh, except that I know that the company was, was, uh, bought out by another company and was absorbed and, uh, you know, hopefully they learned. And that's the thing. Sometimes, uh, you have to watch when you're an advisor or a consultant, you have to watch your clients make bad decisions and then deal with those consequences right. and then help them dig out of that. Right. Um, without saying I told you so, <laughs> but, but it is, um, you can see it coming from a mile off. Like the, the biggest thing I, I can, I can tell when something's going to happen, like somebody's going <laughs> to like hard code an encryption key or something like that. Like yeah. there's certain undisciplined behaviors inside engineering scrums that lead to those kinds of mistakes. You know, and so when, when you're not doing the proper process, there's not, and that there's not the appropriate governance, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. So this circles back all the way to what you started with, which was essentially all the way to the back was a culture of curiosity, compassion with the right cause, empowering the right people, and then making sure you're working together the right way. What would you say are the don'ts? The don'ts. Mm -hmm. Don't try to transplant organizational hierarchical structures onto a software development team. Mm. When you build a software development team, whether it's to maintain an internal product or a consumer facing product or whatever, when you build a software team, make that autonomous, right? Embed the talent that you need in that team, right? Don't have outside service models. Uh, the outside service model is very tempting when you're a large legacy organization, yeah. but, and it's okay to have centralized practices mm -hmm. that like continue to raise the bar for everybody who's embedded, right. but the actual service of the product itself should happen on an embedded team where the design, the research, the strategy, the technical side of it and the business side of it are all together in one room and have to come to an agreement. Yep. They're right. In level playing field, they're all aware, rooted in the same knowledge. Yes. And if you don't, if you feel like you can, or you can't give that level of autonomy to those teams, then realize that you're not going to gain the best of that, that agile software development has to offer. Mm -hmm. um, and there's multiple models out there, you know, uh, the funny thing about those models, though, is that, you know, if you look at the Spotify model and then you work with people from Spotify, they'll tell you, we don't use that model anymore. <laughs> and the Spotify model actually says, don't try to put this into your organization because the model emerges from the people that you have on that team. So it's not about there's a but the one thing that has to happen is that you have to create empowered co-owners of that product. Mm. I've never thought about processing processes coming with a do not try this at home label, but right, <laughs> right. But yes, well, and if and if you if you do, uh, you some people might be forced to use that model. 
you just wherever possible devolve that power downward because when you control all these choices and make people go through all these processes in order to act autonomously you're creating a drag uh, on, on the process and, and then you create disengagement and you know how <laughs> we were talking about the great resignation and, and a lot of people talk about it being the people themselves it's not it's how they're being managed how, what happens when you raise a risk what happens when you try to um act even within your own lane with authority if you get dismissed silenced ridiculed put down um that's not only that person that you're dealing with everybody else saw that and they're all going to disengage as well and then you find yourself as a leader dragging a bunch of boneless people around with you and they've gone boneless because why why would they stand up just to be shot down Yes. Hopefully that culture is changing. But speaking of which, let's switch our focus to the future. Where do you think the biggest challenges are? Or what do you think is going to be the biggest set of innovations coming up for digital transformation? We already well, talked a little bit about how things are accelerating. So that's definitely going to be uh, something to keep an eye on. I think what people and what we're doing here at Singular XQ, and, and, and by the way, if like you came in to see what we're working on right now, you wouldn't even necessarily notice how what we're working on is attached to, to products because it's about the human cultural experience around the product first, right? Yeah. Uh, so we, we're very cultural in our perspective here, sociocultural. But I would say that what people really need to keep an eye on is not AI. It's not Web 3.0 or the metaverse. It's not blockchain. It's how those three things are going to converge together. So what happens, and, and there's always, when we're talking about what happens in digital transformation in the future, there's always two things, right? We tend to talk about one thing and, and not the other, but they're always connected, which is what happens to the consumer-facing experience And then how does that change in the consumer facing experience affect the people working on that experience on the other side of the wall, right? Uh, and, and those two things are going to be impacted by the, the convergence of those three things dramatically. And it's already here. I just think that the adoption challenges are huge. So for example, you know, we're, we're headed to screenless computing, ambient computing. Yep. Uh, we're headed to, which is going to be a whole other level of future of work. Like we're worried now whether people work hybrid or they <laughs> get to work full remote. Yeah. Having that ability is going to be, it could be a draw back to the workplace. Like next gen workstations could be a draw by themselves if you're able to do all kinds of three-dimensional spatial computing at your place of work and it's too expensive to do at home. Right. But the fact is, is it will be at home very quickly because if we've learned nothing, Uh, since Steve Jobs and, and Steve Wozniak, it's that, you know, making it personal is the way it succeeds, right? Uh, so there's that, right? What happens also to corporate governance when we're able to mint onto the blockchain evidence of all of our, re our records, right? Watch what happens when you suggest that kind of minting inside highly regulated environments. It's, it's very concerning yeah. because you can't manipulate on the blockchain the same way that you can in other in other 
areas, at least not now. Quantum computing might change that. (laughs) But for right now, in in the non-quantum sector, uh, that's going to be very hard to to, to mess with that the way that maybe people are typically used to revising their documentation. Um, It's a generous way to put it. And then the, the third thing, is you know what's going to be automated and what does that automation do and how many jobs does that automation create because I believe that people who can instructional design instruction for AI bots is going to be a whole field uh, that PhDs should be very interested in because you know learning how to program an AI bot and teach it is going to be is going to be a, a, a whole a whole new field to get into the the most interesting place for me is is what Sal Khan is doing inside you know Khan Amigo. But that that kind of thing, too, is uh, he's working in education. And in fact, what we are dealing with is a high level machine education. So it's interesting to see where he's going with things there. But yeah, that's it's how those three things converge that that people are going to be actually floored by. Because I think right now, venture capital and the game of venture capital and innovation right now is, you know, pick a niche, pick one product and focus on it. Yes. And here's another reason that we decided to become a nonprofit. Instead of trying to gain competencies across the cross-functional things that we all need to be competent in to understand what, what's happening right now, yes. instead of working on that together, people are trying to narrow things down to a very small niche and a very small piece of the pie mm-hmm. because they believe that it increases their chance of winning the game. Maybe they're right, right? But the fact is, is you can't, you can't be piecemeal anymore. It, everything, it's consilience. It's that convergence point. It's the vanishing point. And we're there. That's where we're headed. The 12-year-old in me is thinking that we're talking about science fiction, but it got here really fast. The world really moved to this point. So yeah, I think the next couple of years will be transformational. I think the impact on human lives will also be huge. Um, yes, yes. We don't... People are not prepared for what's coming. Um, okay, so and and I don't mean to leave this hanging on quite the cliffhanger, but it is a cliffhanger right now. We won't know where this is headed until we see what the governments do about it, how people react to it, so on and so forth. But I was hoping to learn a little bit more about the process, so uh, a sneak peek behind the scenes of the podcast itself, in particular. So um, tell me a little bit about how. You know, you've been approaching people, how you get them to come on, what your process is, what your team looks like, all of it. You want, you want the full story. Well, you know, me, me, uh, I started it first by myself. And then um, Brogan Malloy and Lauren Edwards from the Emerald Isle from Ireland joined us uh, as editors, audio editors. Mm-hmm. And for a while, we were lucky to have Caden Chernoff uh, as a producer to help develop the show uh, for a while. Caden's moved on to something else professionally, but she's still in the periphery and I hope she might come back at some point too. But she was really instrumental in season two, like helping me start to get a different shape to the show and, and everything else like that. But what we do is right now, I have a background in theater and film from my young days. Yeah. And um, I really like producing content, but I also don't have a lot of time to produce content. So what Singular XQ has been up till now, um, and those of you who are listening who have been on the show know I have a very particular brainstorm game that I play in the first 10 or 15 minutes of the recording session. And then that's how we come up with five cool topics to talk about. 
And I sort of just guide the conversation along those five topics. But because we did the brainstorm and did some convergent and divergent thinking together beforehand, it's it's not quite rehearsed, but it's also not completely coming out of left field, right? So that's the way we... Um, so there's not a lot of planning. And the people that we invite is we try to do... We're cross-functional at SigureXQ. We believe that the best experiences are cross-functional and that becoming super nicheified inside little silos is is, is good for a, a particular stage of development. But now those of us who are becoming more senior need to break out of those niches and, and start talking across fields. And if you can't talk across fields, you're not going to be successful in this environment. So we try to pick people from a large cross-section of fields. I'm influenced by the fact that I've been in UX for a long time. So a lot of people are UX and research in particular, but we also have people in cloud, in AI, people who are product designers, people who are engineers, people who are um, you know, usability scientists, human factors engineers. We have people who are um, intellectual property experts. We have uh, Gene Kim coming on. He's an Agile DevOps guru and novelist. He's one of our surprise guests next season. Um, not such a surprise anymore. I just built it. But you know, so all kinds of all kinds of pe- professors, people who use technology and education, social, cultural, and analysts. Yeah. So uh, it's a, it's a we try to get a large, and then we also try to be representative. We have a huge goal to represent those people who um, are traditionally marginalized. Uh, So we try very hard to recruit women, people of color, people with various um, differences, uh, whether it's a disability or um, a neurodiversity difference and neurodivergence. Um, We we look for people who, uh, LGBTQ+, um, just all those voices that we feel have been marginalized. Because anytime you have a disparity or a lack of inequity, there's a lack of intelligence. You cannot show me an environment that has a disparity that doesn't also have something fundamentally unintelligent about how they're going about business. And so people will say, well, you know, the diversity of your team makes you more successful. I think it's actually the people who cultivate diverse teams are more successful, (laughs) which sounds like a distinction without a difference, but it really means that you have an openness to experience. That's, That's unfortunately rare, but openness to experience is one of the things that gives you XQ. You don't need to control outcomes so much that you can dare to have people in the room that shake you up a little bit and uh, and that you like that and that you thrive on that if you like to have a room where everybody looks like you um, you're not going to do well in this environment of VUCA volatility uncertainty complexity ambiguity right we're we're, we're not we're not going you're not going to do well right so I think it's it's a correlation you know uh, and then our teams that have diverse viewpoints, just more intelligent as a collective, probably, right? Uh, but I would say first and foremost, whoever was responsible for putting that team together has an openness to experience and isn't trying to cultivate people who think and look just like them. Diversity of thought is huge as well. So we try to not like go, oh, Ivy League this, Ivy League that. I don't go just to my uh, MLMI, NYU. I don't just go to NYU. I don't just go to uh, any of the other like big name uh, universities to get to get people because diversity of thought is important. So we have people on who've never been formally educated. They're self-educated. Um, so that's that's a big part of how we do it. And then 
we record and um, I do the content editing now um, and Brogan and Lauren do the do the sound editing. I'm hoping now very soon I'm going to be able to do a much more polished and structured format for the show. Nice. But we're, we're growing into that and that's why we're entering our fundraising period. Well, I've had uh, a chance to at least get a little bit of a sneak peek into your process and how and I've seen you work really hard to make sure you're getting as many perspectives as possible and be as open and inviting as you can. So I can vouch for everything that you said. I've, I've witnessed it firsthand. Oh, uh, thank you. And, but in terms of the outcome and whom you're trying to reach with the podcast itself, it looks like in some way or form, you're already building your knowledge capital of digital transformations through perspectives. And it's a 360 perspective. You're getting every single role involved over here at every level of formal education, at every level of majority of digital transformation, so on and so forth. So to some degree, you're already kind of building that capital here, but who, what is your one single aim or goal or hope? You know, that's that's like the conventional wisdom is like the hook has to be there. And it's not that I don't, uh, believe it, but I have struggled with it because digital fa- transformation is such a huge umbrella. And curious people who care is about as close as I came to defining who I'm trying to reach. But I would say that I think that we're going to look back at this era. I've said this to you earlier. We're going to look back at this era as a time of pure insanity, kind of like Gold Rush in California. And we're going to look at what my biggest concern right now is, Artana, is that this whole generation of leadership and engineering design management, um, uh, you know, is, is research is going to waste because they're getting a chaotic, inhumane experience inside these organizations. And, and I think that inhumane experience is the rule and not the exception, unfortunately. Unpsychologically safe or, you know, or psychologically dangerous would be the opposite of that. Um, places um, and that um, run them ragged and throw them out uh, like disposable Kleenex and don't give them the, the autonomy that their skill, experience, and education deserves. So they're becoming embittered and cynical and then they're going to have to lead. So what happens? This, this, this bothers me because I've seen it very talented people who are not being developed uh, and are getting a very cynical point of view on what's going on in tech and innovation. Mm. So I would say that what I'm looking for are those people who see what I'm talking about, who can identify it. When I say this, they don't go, oh, that's not true. Everything's great. Because if, if, if you think everything's great, then you're the beneficiary of the status quo and that's not who I'm talking to. Mm. If you think that there's problems, really big problems, that it feels sometimes like we're not doing anything meaningful at all, that it feels like we're engaging in theater and we're not, and that we're actually trying to do everything we can to not be effective because to be effective would be too de- destabilizing. So we're making gestures towards doing the right thing and hiring the right people, but not doing, if you see that reality, if you feel like we keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, then that's who I'm talking to right now. Because we have to come together and just show a more excellent way to the people who are coming behind us. Mm. Because there is a more excellent way. Mm. 
Um, and we personally feel like we have to be like the PBS of software uh, research and development in emerging tech, like the Channel 13, like in New York, it was Channel 13, the PBS, you know, the people produce Sesame Street, mm -hmm. a resource for people, a nonpartisan resource that is, is working on that better way for, it isn't always about the revenue, it's about human flourishing. How have we improved people's lives? And if that's what we say we want to do, how many people say we want tech for good, we're doing for the social good, for the social good. But if you're saying that and the people inside your company are miserable, you're never going to get, you're going to get the exact opposite of your intended results because miserable people don't create great experiences. No, no they don't. And especially if they're not empowered to, or handed short-term gains to go after instead of the long-term vision that you're solving yes yes so what's what's next what's coming up um well we have our patreon launch you guys can go to the website i'll include it in the program notes and our patreon we really we would really like your support because we have some plans for the show but to do to develop the show in the direction that we want we need a little capital infusion Everything will always be free. You'll always have access to the show for free, but there are going to be some benefits to becoming a supporter all the way up to being a producer uh, or an executive producer, which allows you to co-promote with us on the air to um, speak out and say that you want a, a particular kind of episode for your own work or the work of a colleague or that you want to talk about a particular issue. You can book your own episode to come on and talk if you have a project you want to talk about. Um, but when you get involved at the producer level, you're really going to help us to face the future of CBOXQ. At the highest level, you're actually involved in making decisions with us. So um, I would really encourage people, if you're hearing this and any of it resonates with you and makes sense, um, there's more details about how we're going to bring about these changes uh, to come. Um, but for right now, supporting this podcast so that we can reach as many people as possible would really be a huge help. And if if the podcast raises even a little bit more money, it's going to underwrite our fund, our bigger fundraiser, which is underway for the company right now. So that's what's coming next. We have uh, some really great research happening already through volunteer effort. Uh, we have one person who's working on, you're involved in this one, uh, Project Unicorn. We have uh, working on international student experience and uh, across human and technological touch points. Um, what is the ideal fidgetal, physical and digital experience for the international student coming to North America to study. And that's been very rewarding work so far. Uh, we also have some really, really awesome research going on in sustainability. Uh, Alicia Wigway is leading that. It's called Project Wally, -E, And we are actually working on an open source comic book with a bunch of Cornell students. We're doing an open source comic book on the history of open source. So we're, we're really excited about that um, because we feel like the, one of the barriers to understanding in our uh, the audiences that we're trying to reach that would be supporters of us is why is open source important? What is it? Um, why is it important at this moment in history, which we believe open source is a game changer right now? It's been around for a while, but it really could make a huge difference at this moment where we're so where the ethics are so fraught. Uh, we can't, and we have very low trust of the large tech companies. Um, they have a part to play for sure. Um, but we sort of need these outside smaller bodies of responsible citizens to, and that's kind of what we're building here is a citizenry for people who are involved in tech innovation and software development. 
this is your place to come to get educated, to train, to experiment, to let your um, to let your creative flag fly. Um, and work on things that are for the social good. We have some hackathons coming up next year. The dates haven't been announced yet, but we're going to do at least two. And, um, you know, our website's uh, being redesigned as a open source repository. There'll be a GitHub repo attached to that as well. Um, and um, we're off to the races. That's awesome. You have a lot lined up the next year. And yes. It'll be I- a very full year. Oh yeah, um, I've been listening to the podcast. I can't wait to get on Patreon. Patreon. Yes. I never yes. know. Yet, right? um, and I know there's going to be. Well, I, you already gave us a little bit of a teaser as to who to expect uh, in the next season. Um, I can't wait to see what other heavy hitters you've got coming up as well. Um, yeah, we have a couple of crossover guests that are very, very um, popular in the business world, and one is even in the world of. Uh, Uh, streaming media entertainment um we're really excited about it we're not going to give it away uh but some big names in human-centered design some big names in agile devop engineering that's the funny thing about being truly cross-functional i think of all of these people as celebrities but whether or not you think of these people as celebrities depends on what lane you travel in yes so so if i say uh one person's name Yeah. Um, you know, and he's an agile DevOps engineer who's been at a lot of conferences. He's kind of a rock star, but like the designers like who? <laughs> and then I say another name in human center yeah. design who's synonymous with the name human center design and engineers go, I think right. I've heard that name. <laughs> but see that that's kind of what I'm talking about, right? Like Singular XQ should be the room where everybody comes together and each other's heroes become each other's heroes, Yeah. right? Uh, I think people get fatigued by this idea like, well, this is my lane and I know this, so yeah. I don't need to know who your heroes are because I don't need to read those books or see those things because that's not making me better at my job. But actually that blinded thinking is what's making you worse at your job. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I will happily be the first to admit I don't think I knew all of the guests you've had on. But the episode on cloud computing, that uh, was quite the eye-opener. It's not a perspective I'd, ha- I'd heard before. Even if I'm working with them on a daily basis, we're so down in the nitty-gritty, getting that high-level view of this is sort of where the whole world is heading, um, was a very refreshing perspective. And it was quite the eye-opener. So. And I think I think part of it is like, you know, I'm a Gen X person, and I was thrown into my first like engineering team. There wasn't even an Agile Scrum man. It was just a team um, and they threw me on the engineering team and because there wasn't a real like UX technically existed and there were human factors engineers at the time but they kept saying human factors because I think for those engineers I was a young woman and they thought that I would be really helpful and they were like yeah she could be like human factors right and like and that's exactly what I did I was there to actually translate they were mostly foreign national and they were engineers so there was the issue of the accent of english and the engineering speak and they needed people to help translate that and i had been working in creative spaces with uh, biochemists and pharmaceuticals and so i was able to translate those people well to the business so they put me uh, in here as another kind of translational force and that became what we would recognize as human factors or ux doing a lot of research, writing manuals, yeah. writing technical writing, writing, you know, building the intranet, things like that. Yeah. But the but the thing was is there was no real title or lane for me. I was a utility infielder for those people who played baseball or softball. Yeah. But I I was kind of being thrown so I had to learn what everybody was doing. Um and this only made me better at what I was doing and my ability to talk to different kinds of people. 
So uh, a lot of times when I come into UX teams that are like, that were built post 2015, because that was a watershed moment, that's a whole other conversation, but post 2015, they don't even really know what to do with me because they're like, why is she talking about, you know, agile DevOps and and all of these, and and she wants to get into the zero board and she was, well, because I was always working with the engineers and didn't have my own lane, so to speak. So just knowing everything about what everybody was doing was really important. And I don't think it ever stopped being important, but I think a gold rush happened. I think a gold rush happened. People saw a lot of money. Uh, all of a sudden, what I was doing became intelligible. So a lot of people showed up at the party. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not saying they didn't belong there, but they certainly didn't come with the attitude that they had to learn everybody else's jobs inside the engineering team. And they came in with graphic design skills a lot of times. Um, and it doesn't always translate. And then they and those are the people that are fighting bitterly with engineering because they really don't understand each other. They're speaking different languages. And, but when I come into these teams post 2015, they say, wow, I saw one written report about me. She has a lot of engineering empathy and they're so shocked because they're not used to designers exhibiting that. But I I would say that's the number one uh, talent a product designer needs is to empathize with what the engineers have to build Um, and empathize what engineer experience is. There's a whole field called engineer experience where there's experienced designers who work on how to create a repo, a repo that people want to maintain. Because if you build a code repo that is unpleasant and hard to maintain, it will fall into disrepair like that. If you create a great engineering experience that's fun to maintain, and, and there are things that make it more fun and easier to do, yeah. then then it won't fall into disrepair as easily. So that these are these are things that um, people don't on on the design side of the table don't always think about, mm-hmm. right? And um, and so. Yeah, but that's that's really the future is cross-functional. The future is not being specialist. That completely makes sense. And I think what you saw about them not knowing what to do with you, mm-hmm. um, especially as we talk about the future and so many things evolving so quickly, I can totally see that happening where we're like, I know this is your role, but then how do you apply it and why are you in these conversations? We're already kind of seeing that in some places with everything that's AI, um, and it'll only get stronger and faster. So I can't wait to hear more about those perspectives. Obviously, I can talk your ear off, and and I would love to talk your ear off about this all. Well, and we're we're going to have our Chana back on to the listening <laughs> audience because I need to talk to her about UX and AI because she's a specialist in the field and is doing some amazing work at LexisNexis, and we would really like to talk to her about that experience. So, yes, but yeah, I think I think it's... Uh, we're so lucky to have you, Artana. Oh, thank you. Um, and credit by credit is due, it's theme that's doing all the hard work. I just get to sit <laughs> watch all of this. But uh, to everyone who's listening in, you, you heard her, you can see the wealth of experience that she brings, and obviously this is her inspiring leadership is one of the reasons I signed on. So um, as and when you have time, listen in to all of those other episodes if you haven't already and make your way to Patreon as and when you have time. Thank you, Archana. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And everybody, be well. <laughs>